The scripture reading today is from the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, busy with this very thing. Pay to all what is due to them, taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let me read one more verse from Romans chapter 13. This is verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another. And then from Mark chapter 12 at verse 13. Some of Jesus' opponents tried to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one, for you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius coin and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is on this and whose title? And they answered, The emperor's. Jesus said to them, Give to the emperor Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come before you as those who are hungry and thirsty. We know that we do not have life in ourselves except you give it to us. And we cannot have new life unless it comes to us by your grace through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would take the word that is written, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and by that same Spirit, inspire our hearts and our minds that we may hear a word from you today, which brings us, indeed, new life through our risen Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In our sermons through the spring, we are working our way through one of the most important documents of the Christian faith, a document written within 35 years or so after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and preserved for us in the New Testament 
part of our Bible. The document is Paul's letter to the Romans, from which we have just read. And we come this morning, as you heard, to the 13th chapter of Romans. In the Sundays before Palm Sunday and Easter, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at a marvelous chapter in Romans, the 12th chapter in Romans over a number of Sundays. This is a chapter which speaks about living sacrificially for Jesus. He lived sacrificially for us. He gave his life as a sacrifice for us, and he calls us to live as living sacrifices for him. This is how we worship him, by giving to him what he first gave to us and finding out that life comes through death. Resurrection follows death. When we die to ourselves and live to Christ, his life comes into us. We read in chapter 12 of Romans as well about the fact that every single one of us has been gifted by God. We're not to spend our time comparing ourselves with others saying, well, look at them and what they are and what they do. No, we're to look at ourselves and say, what gift, Lord, have you given to me that I might use it in your service? Every single one of us can do that, says Paul in Romans 12. And then in Romans 12, we saw as well how Paul listed 30 commandments, not 10, but 30 commandments on genuine love. Only one of them was about hatred, hate what is evil, not hate evil persons. When it comes to persons, it's love all the way down the list, 30 commandments. And Paul here, I think, is picking up on Jesus' commandment, given just before his crucifixion, as it were, last week, gives this commandment to his disciples, love one another, and he says, this is the best evangelism there is. When people see that you have love for one another, they will know that you are truly my disciples. The evidence of a powerful, loving Christian community is what so many people are looking for, a family of love to which to belong. How sad that in poll after poll, love is no longer associated in many cases with Christian faith. How desperately sad that is. May we be numbered amongst those for whom that begins to be turned around again and our congregation known for that as well. So that's chapter 12, practical and community building admonitions about love, a theme that Paul is going to pick up on again at the end of chapter 13 and then in chapters 14 and 15 as he moves towards the end of his letter. But at the beginning of chapter 13, as we heard, Paul seems to step off track, this track about love, and raises an issue which simply hasn't been in the forefront, on the front burner, up to this particular time. The issue he raises is a huge one. And his survey is no, not intended at all to be a, a systematic survey. But he raises the issue of church and state, the relationship between Christian faith, belief in Jesus Christ, and government. And I think that the rationale for this sidetrack probably goes something like this. Paul imagines a Christian in the great city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, saying something like this. Paul, I love what you say about love. But it's one thing to love our neighbors inside the church who believe the same things that I believe. But how am I to do this when I step out of the church and into the secular pagan world around about me? You've told us in chapter 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. And you've said, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath, that is, for the justice of God. 
And then you conclude in verse 21 by commanding, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But how do we do this here in Rome? How do we do this here in Washington, D.C.? It's secular. At times, it's godless. It's a seat of government and authority for the whole empire. And we're afraid, these Christians might have said to Paul, that if we serve the secular authorities, our faith, our moral compass, these things will be compromised. How are we to do this, especially in our city, in which we are led by a new emperor? So Paul is writing maybe around AD 56. In AD 54, there's a new emperor. His name is Nero. How do we do this under a new emperor who is capricious and vicious and could turn on us at any moment? Which he did in the next decade or so. He killed countless Christians, and among them, almost certainly, the Apostle Paul himself. So in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, Paul turns to the public world. And while he may not answer all our questions on church and state and government, Nevertheless, in a few brief verses, he provides three basic principles. Three basic principles. Let me just say that there's no time to unpack it. All that Paul says about government here, or to give a full treatise on government here, but three basic principles that stem from our passage of Scripture and surrounding passages of Scripture that I want to share with you this morning and that Paul shares with the church in Rome. So the first principle is this. Never ever forget that ultimate authority belongs only to God. Never ever forget that ultimate authority belongs only to God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Yes, for there is, or maybe but there is, no authority ultimately except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Never forget that ultimate authority belongs to God. And then number two, never forget that the concept of government and the human need for government is not a human idea, but God's idea, God's tool instituted by God. Whoever resists authority, says Paul, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval, for it is God's servant for your good. But if you do what is wrong, sure, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath, justice, judgment on the wrongdoer. So number two, never forget that the concept or the need for government, not a human idea, but it's God's idea, God's tool instituted by God. And then Third, never forget that while there is a time for rebellion and resistance, whenever possible, Christians are to play their part in promoting civil society, even when it's secular, working within the system, whether it's Christian or it's not. Let every person, once again, the beginning of chapter 13, be subject to the governing authorities. One must be subject not only because of the need for justice, wrath, but also because of your conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants, even these godless authorities, busy with this very thing. And here I believe that Paul is echoing the passage of Scripture that I read from the Gospels, where Jesus speaks about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Pay to all what is due to them. 
Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, and honor to whom honor is due. Never forget that ultimate authority belongs only to God. Never forget that the concept of government is not human, but divine. And never forget that while there is a time for rebellion, there really is a time for rebellion against government. The general rule of thumb is that Christians are to obey government, play our part in promoting civil society wherever we possibly can, even when the forces and the authorities and the powers are not Christian. So I want us to explore these three principles briefly this morning. And I'm going to begin with the last one, and this is going to be the most extended explanation, and we'll get shorter as we go along. So number three, but the first one that we are going to be looking at, never forget that where possible, Christians are to play our part in civil society, even when it's secular, even when it is non-Christian, even when at times it's anti-Christian, and at times quite unfair and quite unjust. This is a theme that goes through the Scripture, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, for example, there are a number of stories about the impact of the message of our Lord Jesus Christ on Roman soldiers. And it's interesting how this occurs in a number of places, with John the Baptist and with Jesus, and then with Simon Peter after Jesus' death and resurrection in particular with centurions, those who are officers over a troop of somewhere between 80 and 100 Roman soldiers. But on no occasion, on no occasion, whether it's for Jesus or John the Baptist for Simon Peter, do they tell these soldiers to quit their job as emissaries of the godless Roman state. But rather they say, yes, your life must be changed. Change your life but be salt and light where you are. But no commandment to let go of their job in that particular case. Compromise? Mm, maybe so. Mess it? Yes. But stay where you are. Or back in the Old Testament, perhaps the most important story about faithful believers and secular government is the story about Joseph, the son of Jacob, not the Joseph of Mary, uh, the husband of Mary, the parents of Jesus, but Joseph, way back in the beginning of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, Joseph finds himself, some of you may remember this story, he finds himself in the powerful nation of Egypt as a slave. But then he rises up to become the right-hand advisor of the king of Egypt, the pharaoh of Egypt, during a time of extended famine. So I think we have to think of Joseph as if he were the vice president of our nation, and the president appoints the vice president to be in charge of an extensive FAMA relief program to invent FEMA, to invent the policies, to invent the bureaucracy which does not exist to save the nation in time of desperate famine. And not just the nation, but others who come from other nations to be blessed by what Joseph does. He works with a secular authority and a secular government to be a source of blessing to others. And the same kind of involvement we see throughout the Old Testament, the story of Daniel and his friends who are in exile with godless Babylon, yet they are trained and they play their part as senior civil servants in the government of Babylon, even when they are oppressed by that same government. And then there are others like Mordecai and Esther and Nehemiah who work for the dreaded Persians. 
Each of these seems to follow the advice of the prophet Jeremiah, who says, on behalf of God, seek the welfare of the city to which I send you into exile, for in its welfare you will find your own welfare. Compromised? Yeah, almost certainly. Messy? Absolutely. But that is where they are supposed to be, and they are doing what God wants them to do. This is the most common picture in Scripture of how we are to live as believers in God and as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, though it's not the only picture. It needs to be balanced out by one other story, but this story is huge. In fact, it is the fundamental story in the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus, the story of Israel's rebellion against an oppressive government and their escape across the Red Sea and on their way to freedom. It's basically the story of no more acquiescence, of a revolt initiated by God, initiated and sanctioned by God against an unjust government, a decision no longer to give respect and honor to the civil government. And this is actually the story that Christians, not all Christians, Mennonites, would obviously disagree with this, but that Christians have used, especially Presbyterians, for centuries to justify rebellion at times and certainly civil disobedience at other times, including, of course, that small rebellion on which our nation was founded. And sometimes we forget that our nation was founded, well, at least from a British point of view, with a rebellion, a war of independence, but a rebellion against the government that was there. Professor James Leyburn, who taught at Yale, in the mid-1900s, discovered the following statements in his re research about the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians during the War of Independence. The Scotch-Irish are the Scots who moved first to Northern Ireland and then to this uh, country uh, in the 1700s in large part. So this, he quotes from a Philadelphia Episcopalian who said that a Presbyterian loyalist was a thing unheard of. From a German Hessian captain who wrote, in 1778, call this war by whatever name you may, but it is not an American rebellion, but rather nothing more or less than a Scotch-Irish Presbyterian rebellion. Or from Horace Walpole, Prime Minister in Britain in the early part of the 1700s, who remarked in Parliament, there is no use crying about it. Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian pastor. Pastor, almost certainly John Witherspoon, Presbyterian minister who signed the Declaration of Independence. And then from a New Englander who opposed the rupture with England and who declared that the Scotch-Irish were, with few exceptions, and I quote, the most God-provoking Democrats, that's a small d Democrat in favor of democracy and not of the authority of the crown, the most God-provoking Democrats on this side of hell, driven by their faith. So, Yes, the standard in Romans 13.1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, is not absolute. It's not an absolute statement, and Paul, I'm sure, doesn't intend it to be. But it is the initial and the dominant biblical position in which we have been called to play our part in this messy world, whether it's Christian or whether it's not. That's the first principle. And then the second principle is this in Romans 13. We're never to forget that the concept of government, the need for government, is not a human idea, but it's God's idea. It's divine. It's God's tool instituted by God. Whoever resists authority 
Resist, says Paul, what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for it is God's servant for your good. Even, even the government of Nero. In modern terms, let me put it like this. It's one thing to protest against certain government policies and actions when they are wrong and unjust, to engage in civil disobedience while accepting the consequences. So that's Gandhi, that's Martin Luther King Jr. It's even one thing on occasion to foment insurrection and revolution when things are really bad and when governments become demonic. And the book of Revelation speaks about government becoming demonic. There's no question at times that can indeed be the case. And perhaps the government of Egypt in the time of Moses was demonic in that fashion. It's one thing to think that way, but it's quite another to say, as some people are saying in our nation today, and as some Christians are saying, that government as such, the idea of government authority in and of itself, is evil and bad. No. No. The great enemy of God in Scripture is not government, even the government of Nero. The great enemy of God in Scripture is anarchy and chaos, the absence of law and government. The very first thing that God's Spirit does in the beginning of Genesis is to bring order, regulation, out of chaos. That is God's creative act. And three times in Romans 13, Paul declares that the government, even the evil government of Nero, and it's so important to remember what's going on politically at the time that Paul writes this, is the servant of God. And he declares as well that whatever authorities there are have been instituted and appointed by God. So back to Scripture and the stories in Scripture. Think again of the Exodus. So the people of God escape slavery in Egypt, cross over the Red Sea. They're on the way to the Promised Land, and they are a rabble. There is no government. What is the first thing that happens when they're there in the desert? Moses organizes them. Moses organizes them, and God calls Moses up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. It is a mistake. To think of the Ten Commandments as only moral admonitions and religious admonitions from God to us as individuals. We are to live by these Ten Commandments. That is actually very true. We are to live by those commandments. They are valid to this very day. But in the original context, they formed the constitution of the people of Israel. This was the formation of the government of the people of Israel. Every law in the Old Testament springs from these Ten Commandments, just as our laws spring from and are guided by our Constitution today. So God creates government for the people of Israel as soon as they find liberty. They are not, they are not a, a group of people who are governed just by strong people, but by laws. A government not of people, but of laws. When Paul himself is hauled before the authorities as he is from time to time, and he pushes the limits at times of obedience to, to the government for disturbing the peace, he expresses his pride in being a Roman citizen under the protection of the government of Rome. And he uses the laws of Rome to ensure that there is justice for himself and for those around about him. So what Paul wants his readers to know is that the idea of government in and of itself, is not a bad thing, but a God thing. 
The Bible speaks of chaos and lawlessness as the primary enemy of God, not government. And by the way, when it comes to sexual trafficking today and sexual slavery today, it is most often in those places where laws are not enforced, where these terrible, terrible things happen. Finally, ultimate authority belongs not to human beings, but to God. Ultimate authority, we must never forget, belongs to God and not to human beings. That every person be subject to the governing authorities? Yes. For there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. These are words that should bring great comfort to some and great concern to others, especially to those who wield authority and who are in authority. Let me put it like this. Anyone exercising authority, as well as those living under oppressive authority, need to remember that all human authority is derived. It is not ours in the first place. It comes and it will go. Only full authority belongs to God. And those who wield authority will be held accountable by the God who is the ultimate authority. How often people in government or in business or with employees have forgotten this. How often, how tragically, those who owned people forgot this as well. All human power and authority is secondary, penultimate, never has the last word, is derived from God and will be ended by God. We forget this at our peril. When we forget this, we end up as abusers or we end up as helpless victims in despair. Remember this conversation, once again, as it were, from last week. This is a conversation which Pontius Pilate, the man in authority, had with Jesus, who seems to have no authority, but we know he has it all. And so it's at Jesus' trial. And Pilate says to Jesus in John chapter 19, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? To which Jesus answers, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Wow. Jesus, with full stature, not a helpless victim, you would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Pilate has no sense of his accountability to God, maybe to the folks in Rome. Yes, he's got to figure out what to do, but not to God. And he does something awful with his power. But Jesus is not crushed by that. He knows where ultimate power lies, and there is strength in this. So many questions still to be answered, but three biblical principles to help us think and to chew over with regard to God and government, Christian faith, and the powers that be. The first, never forget that ultimate authority belongs only to God. Place your lives under God's authority. Remember Jesus' words, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Place your lives under Jesus' authority and know that your life is secure, but also accountable to God when you wield that authority. 
Principle number two, never forget concept of government is God's idea, not a human idea. And then number three, there's a time, yes, there is, for rebellion and resistance, and a time certainly to make life and government better than it is at the present time, no question about it. But most of the time, whenever possible, we are to play our part within the systems that exist, changing what we can, but as citizens both of the kingdom of heaven and here on earth, and with God's power to be salt and light where we are. Messy? Yes, at times it can be. Compromised? Uh, at times we'll find ourselves in compromising places. Fought with questions that we cannot answer? Yes, certainly. But where God wants us to be right here and now? Absolutely. May God help us to be faithful to him in this place, in this time, and this city, or whatever city you're in, by his grace. Amen. Heavenly Father, hear our prayer. We need your help. Our government always needs your help. Humble those in authority over us that they might know that their authority is derived from you and use them for the service of many and for the glory of your name. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.